Regardless of the abstraction, whether it's Kubernetes, whether it's overall platform engineering, whether it's various platform as a service services, networking is still arguably the most crucial piece of anything that you're doing, whether it's firewall rules, whether it's ports, whether it's end-to-end -end encryption, whether it's service mesh. Without networking, you can't do much in the Kubernetes space. You can't do much in the IT space as a whole in general. So in this episode, Christina, myself, Marino, we're going to be talking about network engineering for platform engineering. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Michael and Christina. I really appreciate it. Networking is a passion of mine. So when you reached out, I was like, yeah, let's, I think this is the perfect opportunity to really jam in packets into the world of platform engineering. <laughs> there will be a lot of engineering. I mean, when I saw the topic for this episode, I was like, okay, network engineering for platform engineering. I don't think I've heard this before. And I was like curious. I'm like, let me Google this. I was like, nothing. So <laughs> I think a lot of that would probably be in context of Kubernetes, but I think it would be really great to discuss it more in depth. I think it was a while ago we discussed like the networking piece mm -hmm. as one of the episodes. So it's good to kind of refresh our memory a bit and maybe take a look at it from the new point of view. I think the other piece here that everybody needs to remember and understand, we're throwing a lot of marketing hype around abstract this, abstract that, you know, just take your code and run it here and everything's going to work as expected. And that's simply not the case ever. And regardless of if it's cybersecurity, regardless of if it's general IT, regardless if it's platform engineering, you know, infrastructure engineering, whatever it is, without networking, you can't do anything. <laughs> Right. So it, it's very, very much necessary from everything as simple as, hey, I need to expose this port because in the underlying code, this is what the application is expecting to, hey, we want something like a service mesh or something like, you know, a security centric CNI with WireGuard or whatever you're using for end to end pod encryption, for end to end service encryption, and everything in between, just general communication of services of applications without proper networking, it's going to be a mess, right? I totally agree. I'm sure you have worked with IPsec technology. IPsec technology is, you know, one of those interesting ones where for those that are not familiar with it, um, when you're listening in, it's a mechanism to create a virtual tunnel between two remote locations. But in that tunnel, your traffic is encrypted. And that was a beautiful thing because when we needed to connect branch offices together, it was too expensive to go to our service provider and procure a physical wire between these two locations. In fact, try asking them to wire up fiber from New Jersey all the way to like San Jose. That's not going to be cheap, right? Well, obviously with current like internet exchanges, that's entirely possible. There's so many different things you can do. But to get around that, give me a standard internet connection and I'll figure out the rest with IPsec. And that became a standard, right? Because behind these gateways that terminated IPsec tunnels, you had clients, you had server devices. These are all systems that needed to send traffic over the wire, but still maintain that encryption. Now let's take this to the world of Kubernetes and service mesh or using something like WireGuard. That's effectively what we're trying to do. So we've got a bunch of workloads that run on a node and they need to talk to other workloads on another node. Do we want to do this in plain text? If we own the environment and we know every little detail about what's going on there and it's disconnected from the rest of the network or the rest of the internet, sure. But if not, maybe we want some of that encryption in place between our nodes, right? So networking is a very interesting thing because 
it's come a long way. It's transformed in many ways to adopt to different kinds of workloads or to accommodate different styles of workloads like containers, like pods, like even virtual machines alongside bare metal. And this notion of network platform engineering has started to become a recurring theme. And it's kind of been done before in different ways. Let's look at the cloud, for example. When I want to deploy a full multi-stack app across you know, a few availability zones, I would probably likely use a template for that, right? So that I don't have to go and like manually do this unless I'm doing something super custom, something that's like very corner case, very niche, nothing that is ordinary or standard. Uh, but most of the time I have a template that I can follow. And in that template, there is a network template that would normally define what my VPCs would look like, what my ciders would look like, how the routing is going to look like. In addition to that, I'd probably see the kinds of load balancers I'm using, the kinds of security groups and firewall rules I have in place, all defined as code. So in a way, you've already constructed part of your platform using code, which is effectively what I view as platform engineering. You're developing a platform that is accommodating of different kinds of workloads, but you're writing it as code because you also want this platform to be very portable. When I think about the abstract layers that are provided in network platform engineering, we'll start at the very bottom. We've got a a physical network that exists, which we either control if we decide we procure our hardware or someone else controls it. And then if we climb up that stack, now we're at that SDN layer. And if we climb up that stack a little bit further, we might be at a CNI layer. And if we go up a little bit further, we've got that service mesh layer. And then one more layer, if we decide we're getting a little bit fancy, we've got a, an eventing and messaging layer, which we could talk about later on. But all of these layers are programmable. Much like when we think about the infrastructure that supports our apps and the apps themselves can all be defined as code, can all be defined through a CICD system, right? And because of that, network engineering has transformed to be accommodated by platform engineering. Totally agree. And I think even looking at platform engineering as a, I'll call it a systems role, because at the end of the day, for me at least, the key difference between like a DevOps engineer or whatever you want to call it versus a platform engineer, what's the key difference? Well, they're both using the same tools, they're both using the same technologies, but a DevOps engineer is more focused on application deployment and efficient application deployment. Whereas a platform engineer, again, my opinion, I know other people are are thinking of it a different way, but this is the way I've seen it for the past seven, eight years or so. Platform engineers are more focused on the systems. Now, whether you're bare metal, whether you're on VMs, whether you're running VMs in the cloud, whether you're on Kubernetes, anything that you need to do will still have a lot of networking involved. So well, I talk about you know infrastructure slash systems a lot, and I need to think about a different way to approach the conversation. Because when I say systems, for example, or when I say infrastructure, what I'm talking about is the underlying infrastructure itself, the operating system, and the networking. And this is maybe like an old school thing in my head where, you know, when I was an infrastructure engineer, when I was a sysadmin, networking was just like, it was the default, right? Like there wasn't a lot of like network admin style roles anymore. It was really kind of getting jumbled up into this infrastructure engineer, the systems uh, administrator approach uh, or title rather job. So anything that you're doing in the platform engineering space, I'd argue that you have to be incredibly efficient in networking. I'm not saying you need to be a double CCIE, but what I'm saying is you got to understand how you communicate, right? To your point earlier of like, hey, you're going to do fiber from New Jersey to Toronto. 
Where's the coax going to be? Is it going to be full fiber to fiber? What are the lines going to look like? Oh, you need public IP addresses. How much is that going to cost? How many do you need? Like there's even like these nuanced questions all the way up to, are you using a service mesh or even underneath that? What's your site arranges? What are your private IP stacks? If you have one private IP stack here, 192.168.1. whatever, 10.0.0.16 over here, is there any uh, communication issues? Is there anything overlapping? Do you have, like, there's just so many different things that fall into this equation simply because platform engineering as a whole is very much a systems style role. So you need to be incredibly efficient in networking. The efficiency really comes down to the notion of understanding how those packets move, but it doesn't necessarily translate to folks knowing, you know, the deep capabilities of BGP and all the different uh, algorithms, or or I should really say like attributes that you can manipulate in BGP to influence a, a various paths, right? But having that understanding is better than not, because as you're designing multiple distributed systems supporting those distributed apps, there is going to be corner cases that's going to require you to know a little bit of that BGP magic. Now, it's it's actually very fascinating. When you were discussing those abstractions that we build, that we've actually created, I feel like this is the idea of we're going to try and abstract this away, but also commoditize this. Because turning something into a commodity means that it's readily available and always going to be available. The reality is, we think that compute is always going to be infinite. We think that bandwidth is always going to be infinite, but it actually isn't. And it has a real cost. Like when we think about the environment, the thing, uh, mm-hmm. when we think about manufacturing, and then when we also have to think about having experts go out to deploy this stuff and be available to support it when something goes wrong, right? There's an entire life cycle that exists in itself. And so it's not very infinite. It's, it is finite. It's just, we don't know where that ending is. And I think we also have to decide at some point, like to be sustainable environmentally, you know, do we stop and do we go back to some of our older devices and recycle some of them? Or do we start to think about the abstractions again to leverage? Here's a perfect example. SD-WAN is a perfect example of let's not try to overbuild something, but they still kind of did anyways. They built software and then they built hardware appliances to just aggregate links, which in a way prevented us from having to go back and lay new fiber or more copper or come up with new ways to like do wireless or something like that. But the reality is SD-WAN kind of saved us and gave us some level of sustainability. And I think we're opting for more of those technologies. Here's another thought, right? All that lab gear that I have here, right? All that lab gear that you might have somewhere in your your home office. I've seen it on Twitter and other places too. That's all still usable stuff. It's all gold, right? And people overlook it and think, oh no, I have to have the latest and greatest CPU architecture (laughs) with all these different instruction sets. And oh, by the way, I've got to have like half a terabyte of RAM in my... No, it's not like that. Like go look at what's the availability zone, US East 2, right? The original one and what it's running. Yeah, I mean, you touch upon a a great point there, actually. I've seen a lot of this, even in organizations. It's not just about individuals, but like organizations are thinking about that. Okay, all the devices need to be, you know, switched out like every fifth, uh, third year, I think it was initially. And now I am happy to see that, for example, in Norway, they have uh, introduced a law that now it's like seven years, I think is the minimum time you need to have your servers, your laptop 
laptops, your mobile devices, if you're working in an organization before you could actually switch that. And I think that makes a lot of sense because I have personally been using like my laptop, which I am working with development at my work with for eight years and it's been working fine. It's handling running local Kubernetes clusters. It's handling running as many containers as I would love to have, even multiple clusters as I would love. And you would think it's like eight years old laptop, you know, how will it manage? And still it managed it really well. I was actually quite surprised. And I think maybe a lot of this also goes into this trend that we have seen with the new technologies, with the new way to architect systems, like what you are mentioning there, Marino, regarding the distributed systems, right? It has become a trend at some point and many companies were like yeah let's do let's break down that monolith let's start doing tens and hundreds of microservices let's build a distributed system that will run on kubernetes and one of the challenges you face with a distributed system is also the networking piece and then suddenly when you're long below that path you figure out oh how am i gonna handle that complexity how am I going to be ensure that my solution is efficient, performant? That kind of, and I think it's also important to probably think about what would actually work in your specific use case in a company and not just do it because microservices are cool, for example. I'm thinking about two things here. Number one, I'm thinking about for all the newer engineers that are listening here, maybe you have three, four years of experience, you haven't seen the cycle yet. But the cycle, we're always going in a circle every 10 years, give or take. <laughs> we don't use buzzwords here on this podcast, but I'm going to use one because I feel like this is how everybody is understanding this now. Flat repatriation or however you pronounce it. All this means is we're going back on prem. Now, regardless of if that's true or not for all organizations, what I want to point out is Spoiler alert, we used to run everything in VMware boxes, uh, you know, 10 years ago. We're going in a, in a circle now, right? And this is the way engineering and, and tech overall has been for a very, very long time, where you kind of go from one place, you want to go better, 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 better. And then you end up right back where you started. And, you know, the, the other thing I think as well, from a psychology perspective, modern day consumerism, right? We live in a world where more is better, new is better. New is going to get you to that happiness end goal. New is going to get you to that state of, oh, this is great. And that's what we're seeing in our lives day to day. New phones, new laptops, new this, new that. And we see it in corporate as well, right? Because we're humans, as it stands right now, working in corporate. Therefore, we're going to bring that mindset with us, right? So new servers, new this, new methods of deploying, new faster abstractions, new this, new that. The reality is, is that that's only so sustainable, right? You can only get to a certain point. Like it's funny, you know, again, you look at some marketing and it's like, we're going to abstract everything away from you. You just pop in your code and that's it. Sorry, but that's not the way things work. Maybe it works great for a demo app, right? But other than that, it doesn't work like that any of the time. And not to pee in anybody's cornflakes, but if we go back to when serverless first started coming out, what was the whole thing about serverless? You're going to be able to take all of your code and just run it. You're just going to step back and you're never going to have to touch anything again and it's going to work so great. Spoiler alert, that didn't occur. 
right? And yes, there are organizations still using serverless and it's, I'm not going to say it's not popular, but what I will say is it didn't reach the hype that everybody thought it was going to. Why? Because what would happen? You would upload your code and you would say, oh, well, this thing can only have you know, to your point, Marino, X amount of bandwidth, X amount of incoming requests, X amount of outgoing requests. Oh, how does this thing scale once we have X amount of incoming requests? Oh, we still need to do some networking here, some networking there. Oh, this still needs to be multi-region because this region goes down. Guess what? It didn't scale out to wherever. So now we still need to set that up. So regardless of layers of abstraction, it still comes back to us needing to do things, right? And those things that we typically need to do are usually around infrastructure systems and networking. I completely agree with that because at the end of the day, those networking skills that I learned back in like 2008 when I was like going through the CCNA or Cisco Academy or something, that's still heavily relevant today. A lot of that stuff I use, like I'm digging into it. I still do a lot of static routing. I still mess around with BGP. And that is going to be important to a lot of people when they think like, how are my skills transferable? One of the biggest challenges that I'm going to see is not that everything is coming back on premises, but we're going to see a movement in that direction for the next little while. There are a lot of cloud engineers that don't have the on-premises skill set. They don't know what optical transceivers are. They don't know the differentiation between 10 gig versus one gig when it comes to like Ethernet, right? And it's not nothing against them. It's just that the big cloud companies have done a fantastic job of like hiding all of this and saying, look, you're never going to have to worry about this. Here's your EC2 instance. Go have fun is why we are getting to this point. And why, why this excites me is because folks like Michael Cade, Kat Morgan, myself and others that are building, I think you are too. We're building up home labs again to demonstrate how important working with hardware is. And not only that, like understanding the networking behind it, understanding how to deploy and work with hypervisors, because this is exactly how we used to do things 10 years ago with, like you said, with vSphere, right? So what I would say to folks, like if you're thinking about this, if you're really assessing, oh my gosh, if everything's moving back on premises, what do I do? Really double down on networking. Migrations are going to be hot and knowing how to work with migrations and network technologies is going to be hotter. That's the funny piece of it as well. Again, going in this circle, network engineering and network administration, like this was a big role, you know, 12, 13 years ago, give or take. If you had a CCIE, and and by the way, I don't know how the CCIE looks now, but back then, the CCIE, you would have a written and a lab, right? The written, you would take multiple choice. The lab would be, <laughs> you're literally in like a closed room being watched in California somewhere, right? And somewhere where Cisco <laughs> is doing this. And you would be doing your thing, doing the lab, blah, blah, blah. And this was expensive, by the way. The flight, the exam, everything was your dime. Hotel, everything was your dime. And what would happen was, let's say you were just doing something, you're in iOS, not Apple, iOS is uh, Cisco's software for the terminal. So you're in iOS and you're doing this and you're doing that and people are watching you. Somebody would come in, because there's other people in the room, right? So it was very quiet. Somebody would come in, tap you on the shoulder, go like this, and you were done. You had no idea why, you don't know what you did wrong. And by the way, you still had to pay for everything. Those jobs would get you easily six figures. I mean, you were looking at 150, 200,000 and 12, 13 years ago, <laughs> that was like making 500,000 now, right? Maybe a little bit less. So like point is we're going in a circle right now. We're going to come back to the days of network engineering, network administration being incredibly crucial. So to your point, Marino, yeah, double down on that stuff. I do see the value 
of doubling down on that, even if the company or the project where you're working or where you will be working will not decide to go back on premises. And that I can say from my own experience, because while working as a developer before I entered the cloud development space and the platform engineering, the Kubernetes administration uh, domain, I was uh, working with software development, but I was like interested in understanding the networking because I always found it so complicated and exciting because it looked so complicated. And then I have realized that at some point I ended up in a project building hybrid solution, for example. And this is also quite a high possibility that you may also end up doing that because many organizations uh, may have multiple systems and maybe due to security constraints, maybe running some services on premises or due to some other reasons and something in cloud. And they want to get kind of the benefit of those two. And in that setup, understanding the networking is also very important because you need to think about so much more when you're building this hybrid solution to ensure that you don't have any overlapping IP ranges, that everything is set up and configured in a secure manner and no data is being leaked, uh, for example, when it's being sent uh, to the cloud services, for example. And that's where this knowledge can also benefit you. And I still see, for example, quite many projects where network policies in Kubernetes clusters are not set up. And I'm getting goosebumps of that because this is like, this is a very basic thing we are talking a lot about. And it's still the case that uh, this is being set depending. And yeah, we will do it at a later point. It's okay. The way it is right now, it works. And then we will do it at some point. And then how many years have gone since you created that cluster? <laughs> and the, the, it's still on your backlog. So I think like getting that knowledge in networking and why it's important and why it's important to secure that would benefit you lots to fix those things before any major danger happens and it will kind of be a bit too late. So yeah, I totally agree with you on that, Marino. You're absolutely right. Like the network underlying foundational knowledge never changes. It never will change. Like regardless of how many people try to build abstractions on top, it'll never change. Michael, you brought up the point about the CCI, right? I, I actually did attempt it. I did two lab attempts, passed on my second try. Uh, it was difficult. But the one thing I'll say is like the lab exam is nothing like you would see in the real world. Like none of that stuff you see is like real world anyways. I don't know if this CCIE data center exam is the same as it was like when I took it back in 2015, but the goal was to do remote boot from SAN, like booting a virtual machine from a remote SAN uh, over, I think it was like either fiber channel over ethernet or iSCSI or something like that. I can't remember. And like the way I had to go about it is just such a non like industry standard best practice way so anyways to your point yes the first attempt was like a very expensive 1600 plus flight lunch the second attempt oh. while it was like it it went a lot better it was just like ah you know why didn't i just like catch this one little thing that first time around but i think you know the ccie had its value way back when uh, not that it doesn't have value now it's still very valuable especially if you're within the, the Cisco ecosystem or in that net network ecosystem. Because what you're going to see is you have organizations that are either moving to Cisco or moving away from Cisco or doing other things that involve networking. And 
a CCIE is like, I'd say at this point, I, I haven't checked the, the recent like blueprint, but I'd still say that they're about 30% very proprietary and 70% generalized in the sense that they can still take 70% of their knowledge and apply it any, anywhere they want to. And if that's still the case, then, you know, the CCIE is still valuable, especially in the case of repatriation, because there's a lot of interesting things that are going to be going on. VXLAN is still in, in the chat, right? We still have MTLS and IPsec still kind of doing different things, but perceiving to be the same thing in some ways, right? Depending on how you look at it. And then you have service mesh that could still do a lot of this and abstract it away from you, but then you have network engineers not even using this technology. To your point, I want to mention that as well, is when you're taking these exams, I had this conversation the other day, Christina and I. With Benjamin? Yes, about, thank uh, you. With the ben. Kubernetes certifications, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we, we mm. were talking about something similar. We were talking about like the CK, for example. And, you know, it's hands-on. And it's much better than answering A, B, C, or D. That's for sure. But it's not going to get you that real world. Like, I'll argue that implementing it in your own home lab is going to be more real world than going, sitting in an exam or something like that. To your point, Marino, even if you don't want to go the Cisco route, you can do the Network Plus. The Network Plus by ComSia, it's used to be on par with CCNA. CCNA was just more Cisco focused. And then there was also the CSENT, which was like the first cert that you had to take. Uh, I think Cisco is now replacing that with two different certs. There's a network focus and a cybersecurity focus that I believe the CSEN will be replaced with. And then you'll be able to go do the CCNA. So there's so many different options. I mean, you don't have to do the certs, but what I would recommend, I mean, even like this is something that I do a lot where, because I'm not a big cert guy, to be honest. I have a couple, but like they're not on my LinkedIn and they're not anything that I'm ever renewing. I just kind of did it just because I was interested. But what I would say is even if you're not going to sit for the exam, go get the book or go get the audio book or go get the practice exams and just have fun, like curiosity, right? Like what's, what's one of the biggest parts of self-mastery? curiosity, right? Go study for it. Go have fun, right? Build the home lab. And if you want to sit for the exam, go ahead. You know, you don't have to, but just gaining that knowledge. You can gain a lot of theoretical knowledge from certs that will transfer once your hands are on the keyboard. You'll understand the why behind why you're doing the thing, right? And I always say that. I always say you need the theory and you need the hands-on because if you just know the theory, you won't fully understand it once you're behind the keyboard. And if you're behind the keyboard without the theory, you're not going to know the why behind what the heck you're doing, right? So you need both. So you can definitely get that theory from the certifications, studying for the certifications. Again, you don't have to go sit for it. Yeah, learning by doing. That's when you kind of get that material manifested in your head. And I also prefer certifications for like getting the structured approach. And there are often quite many like tasks, you know, out there, like a set of different tasks that you could prepare yourself with for the certifications, but you could actually just use them as practice tasks just to start doing that yourself, be it a home lab or like, for example, I know folks who were using home automation as a motivation to learn more about like setting up networking, setting up the different devices and kind of automating some of the different actions you could do at home to optimize your everyday life. And then you get that combination of getting that practice and doing something that is fun as well that can be a real life project with some end results. Testing networks is actually interesting because testing networks across physical, virtual, and containers has never been easily achievable. 
And what's beautiful is if you actually think about some of the advancements that have gone on with like how Dynamips and GNS3 evolved into viral. And then now we see an evolution of that into something called Container Lab. Container Lab, in my eyes, is the mechanism that I can feed into my CI/CD process, test my physical and virtual and container networks, see how they all operate when I make these like policy changes or QoS changes, or maybe I start using multiple environments and see how that response looks like. And then now I have not an entire replica of what my production environment would look like, but I'd have maybe a scaled down version, which gives me enough to kind of prepare for it. So folks listening in, check out containerlab.dev. I think it's containerlab.dev. And basically you could deploy Cisco iOS, ASR, iOS uh, XE, virtual appliances. You could deploy other like Juniper, Nokia style virtual appliances. And then you could bridge this into Docker and Mm. Kubernetes. And then you could start seeing things how like Cilium and BGP work with, with Cisco. So yeah, take a look at that. And I'm kind of excited about this because if you're really trying to programmatically configure your network through the API, Container Lab will offer that for you because a lot of virtual appliances these days will offer up a REST endpoint. And with that mm. REST endpoint, um, you can configure either using like PyETS and configure your network according, like let's say you're configuring a switch ports and then you're configuring a bunch of VLANs. Okay, that's easy enough to automate with PyETS. But then let's also say you're now configuring each one of your rack nodes or your top of rack switches as BGP speakers. You could do that across all switches or layer three switches in a one full swoop without having to like sit there and log into each device. And then all you're using is like a loop at this point to iterate across all those devices and cross check and make sure you haven't already named them. So it's very cool how you start to bridge like a lot of that network automation with network testing with the REST endpoints, with being able to tie this into your physical and like containerized environments. Sorry, I'm shielding for like Container Lab. I just like found it really cool (laughs) last year. And it's like so fun to play with and so flexible. Yeah, but that's actually cool. I mean, I would really love to check that out. I need to be uh, honest. I haven't tried that before. And I think this type of setup where you could actually test it in kind of a real life scenario is super super useful to get those uh, skills like to a higher level and like i'm quite often being asked by folks from the community like how do i get that production level experience for example with kubernetes or for example with setting up networking for workloads running in kubernetes because there is a lot of theory out there there are a lot of like abc like you mentioned michael abc types of multiple choice questions but when it comes to work and when it comes to applying for jobs what organizations are looking for is actually your skills so how how can you get them and i do believe that services like this that can offer you both sandbox environments or some kind of labs where you could like start with setting up everything from scratch or maybe applying to your own home lab. I think that's when you get as close as it's possible without paying loads of money for, I don't know, setting up an infrastructure that will be enterprise level because that would not be realistic for an individual trying to just learn about it. And and to both of your points, I mean, the whole idea of having some type of instruction or some type of idea in front of you to go and do a thing is so incredibly crucial. I mean, I can't tell you all how many times like I'll set up my home lab and I'll just kind of look at it and be like, so what should I do? 
<laughs> where do I start it? Yeah, like where where should I start? What should I do? What should I play around with? And like if you're just trying to like come up with things in your head, nothing is going to pop up. But if you have some type of like for example, a lot of the like the cert labs and stuff would be like build this, build this, blah blah blah. Like if you have like just an idea, like a one sentence idea of like go do this, you know, go replace, you know, your, your Nick with fiber Nick, like whatever, like you could do so many different things. And if you just have this idea in front of you, uh, it makes life a lot easier versus just, and I've done this so many times, there's nothing worse than sitting there with an empty VS code window up and wondering what code you should be writing without an idea in your head. <laughs> Funny that you're, you're bringing this up because I struggle with the same thing when I get up my home lab. Okay. It's all up and running. The endeavor to get it up and running was enough of a project and a task in itself. <laughs> but lately, what, what's been really exciting to me is like the goal of trying to make my home lab resemble a cloud in the sense that, hey, I've decided the cloud is too expensive now. And when I hit my, my threshold of my spend, let's say hundred bucks a month, I should not continue to you know build more workloads on the cloud. Now I should burst on premise. And what would that look like? How, how would that all work out? What would the requirements be? Could I get the same level of experience or would I see lesser of a performance, lower SLA, SLO? These kinds of things start to like come into fruition around like your strategy around home lab operation, but then also on-premises operation. That is what I'm after, right? The migration process, what I'm going to need to be able to do that. And that's what I'm effectively doing right now. So I'm, you know, testing out, can I achieve like, you know, a migration tunnel using like WireGuard, what will that look like? Will it be optimized enough? Should I use something like SD-WAN? Should I use a WAN optimizer even to optimize and dedupe some of those? Like these are older technologies that still have a lot of relevance today. That sounds like a super fun project. It really does. Yeah. And, you know, again, thinking about going back full circle here, I don't know about y'all, but I'm seeing more and more talk about OpenStack, right? OpenStack is making this comeback, right? And it was never really gone because I think the majority of telecom providers are still using OpenStack, but people are like starting to think about it again. I don't know if anybody here has ever done a, a OpenStack migration, but it's 18 hours of no fun going from data center to data center. And this was years ago when I did that. So hopefully it's easier now, but uh, that that's still very much like an option in today's world. You know, like for example, like I'm running Proxmox at home, but there's a big part of me that, you know, wants to pick up a couple more Intel nooks and run a fully clustered OpenStack environment in my in my home. So that'll make things, you know, a heck of a lot easier. Wrapping up here, Marino, is there anything else that you'd like to leave everybody with uh, before we give you a chance to, you know, plug away? Yeah, absolutely. What I highly recommend everyone check out is eBay. Look for hardware. Look for either a combination of Raspberry Pis, ARM, uh, x86, and create a Frankenstein lab if you can, because I think you'll start to realize that not everything is perfect. Like the cloud isn't perfect, and your home lab is, you know, if you can resemble some some of that imperfection there, you start to overcome and you start to realize how you can work through like certain issues. Also, I agree, like the CCNA has a lot of value. Go check that out. In fact, I think they do now introduce a lot of automation. And this is not really, you know, a plug for Cisco, but it's just like Cisco has established a track record of educating the community when it comes to networking. I will always recommend that people start there and then decide that they want to branch out. Finally, like the world of cloud native is very vast. One of the things that I'm really focused on over the next year is 
bringing a lot of the network fundamentals back into the community so folks understand how we work with Cilium and why network namespaces are relevant to the point that DNS is always going to be important and uh, BGP still you know lingers in the chat somewhere. So <laughs> that's all I want to leave with everyone. Very cool. So now uh, opportunity, please plug away at anything you'd like. Books, courses, I know you do a ton of stuff. I know you're, you're building your own thing. So if you'd like to plug away, please feel free to do so. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Christina and Michael, for that opportunity. So I run an organization called Empathy Ops, which is fractional advocacy and tech marketing and even network and security consulting on cloud native and, and before all the cloud native stuff. And the reason I did this was because I realized in the last 20 years, there has been a lot of gaps around understanding the value of networking. I'm talking about technical networking, but also like human networking, but the value of interoperability as well, because of the fact that interoperability exists gives you so much more flexibility in the way you want to design your networks. So through some of this advocacy, through some of the work that I do with a lot of other organizations, I begin to learn uh, there are clients that are doing some interesting things with their own networks. And it's great to come back and take some of this information and share it with you all. Having said that, you know, I specialize in Istio, Cilium, the hardware networking world, the software-defined networking world, and anything on the way. So if you have any questions, reach out to me. I am happy to assist you. Uh, reach out at marino at empathyops.io, or you could follow me on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Christina. Thanks, Michael.